Um, okay, so the question I'm answering tonight, yes, is what if I don't feel God? And the reason I, like, I picked this question is because it's a question I've had a lot, and it's a question that girls that I've mentored have had a lot. So the student I think about kind of first whenever I hear this question, she's, I mentored her through like her middle and high school years ago. And I started meeting with her, gosh, she was like, she was 12, what is that, sixth grade? That's sixth grade, right? Yeah, so we started meeting when she was in sixth grade, and she was like a pretty normal, um, like sixth grade girl. Can I like push this down? I feel like, there, okay, that's better. Like looking through a microphone at you guys. Okay, so she was like a normal sixth grader, right? Um, and then she started losing weight super fast. So we, you know, had questions, got, went to lots of different doctors, and she was diagnosed with an eating disorder at the age of 12. And um, she was really kind of a tough case. She had to have intensive treatments, and it took months and months of therapy, and she ended up having to go to a residential treatment facility before she started to kind of come out of it. And um, as you can imagine, that was an extremely dark time for her. And I walked with her through part of that time, at least, and um, we continued to meet like throughout her high school kind of career. And typically when we'd meet, it'd be like the normal like drama, boys, complain about teachers, blah, blah, blah. But every once in a while, I would try to like steer, us, steer the conversation towards God. And she would always say that she has never felt God. She's like, look, I've never felt God. I've never felt his presence. People talk about like, oh, well, I just felt like God was with me. And she's like, I, I've never felt that. And she didn't feel him in her darkest time, right? So when she was in that residential facility, she didn't feel like God was there. And she said, look, if God cared about me, I would have felt his presence. So her conclusion was, okay, yeah, God's real, but he doesn't care about me in my life because if he did, I would have felt him. I was a little bit different. When I was in high school, I had a couple like, you know what I'm saying when I say like camp high, right? When you're just like, Jesus, yeah because you like go to camp and everything's exciting and you're like feeling it. I had a couple of those experiences, but I often I would see people like crying in worship or like being very kind of emotive when they worshiped God. And I would think like, um, maybe I don't love God as much as them, right? So unlike my student who kind of concluded God must not love me if I don't feel him, I felt like I must not love God if I don't feel him as much as these other people. So if you've ever felt this way, like something's wrong with you or like something's wrong with God, I first want you to know that you're in very good company. I would say almost every Christian that's been a Christian longer than like a minute um, has had a time when they just didn't feel it, when they did not feel God. They didn't feel God moving, worship was stale, dry, and it seemed like God was far from them. Tonight, I'm going to give you four possible reasons for that and then um, three things you can do when you just don't feel it. So the first, before I kind of get into the reasons, I just want to give a caveat that feelings are by definition subjective, right? Like that's the literal definition of them. There are objective truths that speak to feelings, but everyone's idea of what's like normal is different, right? Like what's a normal amount of like emotions to feel. Um, so that brings me to my kind of first possible reason, and that is just personality, right? We all have different personalities. When I would see these girls like weeping at conferences or at camp or on retreats, I'd feel like maybe I didn't love God as much as they did. But the reality is I just don't cry when I'm around other people, like very easily at all. I tend to keep it together and not feel as deeply when I'm around people. Um, I would actually, when I look back, I felt pretty connected to God when I was talking about him, when I would share about like what he was doing in small groups and things like that. 
Um, but singing and crying, like that just wasn't my thing. And we see this in scripture. If you look at the 12 disciples of Jesus, you see a lot of personality differences. I'm sure there's like some like the personality types of the disciples out there, but I did not look that up. Um, so if you look at the 12 disciples, there's a lot of personality difference. Peter, he's like the hot-headed, emotional one. He's like, I'm jumping out of the boat. Like, you're Jesus, you're the Christ. He's like very, um, yeah, he's obviously a feeler, right? And then there's Thomas, who's more of an intellect, right? He's like always asking the questions and always um, needing more intellectual conversation. And then, you know, after Jesus rose from the grave, Thomas is like, I don't believe it. I'm not buying it until I have proof. Right? So there's different personalities. There's different ways that people relate to Christ. And that's kind of the first reason, um, which is pretty self-explanatory. The second reason is sin. Right? So sin is something that is doing something that's not in line with God's plan for the world. Right? It's operating in a way that you were not designed to operate. I'm not sure if you've experienced this, but the first time you do something that you know is wrong, you feel bad, right? Like you feel guilty. But then you like, if you do it again, it's like you feel less bad. And then you do it again, you feel even less bad. And you can't really hear that voice anymore that's like, hey, you shouldn't do that, right? It kind of goes away. And we see this so clearly in the Bible. There's the story of King David, which a lot of you are probably familiar with this story, but just bear with me. Try to hear it with fresh ears because as I was reading, I was like, this is insane. So David, King David, he's described um, as a man after God's own heart. God loves David. But in the Bible, um, David commits murder and adultery. (laughs) So David, just to paint the picture, David's a king. He's home at the palace when his, his country's at war. So he's supposed to be at war, but he's at home. And when he's at home, he looks out. It says, the scripture says he like looked out and he saw Bathsheba and she was very beautiful and he desires her. Okay. So then he's like, Hey, um, tell me about Bathsheba. Right. He like asks his pals, like, what's the love with this Bathsheba? And they're like, yeah, she's married. And he's like, but I am the king. So he calls her to the palace and he sleeps with her and sends her on her way. Well, unlucky for him, she gets pregnant. So she sends a note to the palace. Hey, bro, I'm pregnant with your baby. And he's like, that's not great because her husband's at war. So can't be his baby. So then King David's like, "Mm, this is not a good look. The lady that I like called to the palace that I was asking about, like, this is very not, this doesn't look good for David. (laughs) Like now she's going to be pregnant and her husband hasn't been home. Like, you know, people can do, like, think about that. That's kid. Can't happen. So he calls her husband home from the battlefield. He's like, hey, Uriah, come give me a report. Uriah's her husband's name. You know, it's a potential. Just kidding. We're not going to name our baby Uriah. Um, <laughs> so Uriah, the husband, he's off at war. And David's like, Uriah, come, come back to the palace. I need to talk to you. So Uriah comes back and he's like, how are things going, Uriah? Tell me, give me a report. And David's like, feel, or Uriah's probably feeling good because he was called to the king. And he's like, yeah, it gives him a report. And then David's like, have a gift. Guilty much, just saying. He gives him a gift and then sends him home. But Uriah does not go home. He decides he's going to sleep on the ground because all of his comrades at war are still sleeping on the ground. So he's like, I'm not going to go sleep with my wife and sleep in my nice warm bed when all of my like fellow soldiers, I was like, couldn't think of soldiers for a second. All my fellow soldiers are out there sleeping on the ground and they're not sleeping with their wives. So he camps out essentially and doesn't go home. That's a problem for David. David's trying to cover his sin. He wants Uriah to go home and everyone to think Uriah slept with his wife and now the baby is Uriah's. Uriah doesn't do that. So then what does David do? He's like, hey, Uriah, don't go back to the battlefield yet. Come back to the palace. I need to talk to you some more. And he gets him drunk, super, super drunk. 
And then he sends him. He's like, surely if he's drunk, he'll just like go home and sleep with his wife. No, no. He still camps, even though he's drunk. So then what does he do? This is, I mean, this is like major mess. He just tells, sends Uriah back, which this is like so sick, with his own murder note. He like sends Uriah back with a murder note to the commander of the army. And it says, hey, put Uriah in the worst part of the fight and then have everybody else back up. So he's killed at bat in the battle, a.k.a. murdered by the king. Okay, so you can see how this story like goes bad to worse, right? Like he starts, it's like a crime of passion, right? He sees this beautiful woman. He's like, I want to have her. And he does. And it's not, I mean, obviously bad, adultery bad, but it's, it, it's kind of like this one-time thing. And then he has to cover it up. And then he just like keeps having to cover it up and keeps having to cover up. And then um, eventually he literally like murders a man, and, but he thinks he's fine. So he murders Uriah and then he marries Bathsheba. All good, right? She has his baby. Things are looking fine. And you'd think that he knows that it's like majorly wrong what he did, but he doesn't. This man named Nathan, okay, I'm like getting too deep into the story. I'm like going off my notes here because it's so crazy. You should read it. It's in the Bible. This man named Nathan comes and he's like, hey, David, there's this guy in in your kingdom, and he's really rich, and he has a million lambs, and but there's this one poor man who has a lamb that he loves very much, and he killed them to take the man's lamb, and David is irate, and he is like, I'm going to kill that guy. Who is he? And, and Nathan says, very famously, you are that man. David didn't even know that Nathan was talking about him. It's like, bro, you literally like slept with a man's wife, Well, and poor Bathsheba, like, he killed her husband. Anyways, like, how did he think this was going to go for him? You like sleep with this woman, you get her pregnant, you kill her husband, and then you're like, hey, let's be married now. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. So, and he thinks it's fine. So, David, in this story, he numbs himself to the voice of God. He dulls the voice of God in his life, okay? But then, when he is shown his sin, in Psalm 51, I think I have it on the screen, uh, it says... Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So when, when his sin is revealed to him, he realizes the person he sinned against is really God, right? Obviously, yes, Bathsheba and Uriah and all of their family and, you know, the people, the, man, the commander of the army that he asked to do this, like all of those people. But he knows that really the barrier is between him and God. Now, most of you, I would say, have probably not committed murder, recently, um, right? Uh, or adultery, like David had. But I think you can probably relate to the slow dulling of that voice, right? That's the slow dulling of, hey, you shouldn't do that, right? Maybe, you know, the first time you cheated on homework, you felt bad, but now you're like, it's just homework. At least it's not a test, right? You just dulled the voice of God. Or maybe you have a boundary with your boyfriend girlfriend, and the first time you cross the boundary, you're like, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. But then you just like keep doing it and you don't feel bad anymore. You have just dulled the voice of God. See, God is not going to shout at you. He is not going to force you to do anything. He gives you a choice. So if you stop listening, you stop hearing him. When you have sin in your life, it becomes harder to hear his voice at all. Not just the, hey, don't do that voice, but in all areas, in worship, in your friendships, all of those places. Places that you used to feel his presence, you used to feel him, you can't anymore. Now, that's not to say that everybody who feels, who doesn't feel God the way they used to is living in sin. That's not what I'm saying. 
But I am saying, like, let's be honest. Like, let's examine ourselves honestly. Okay, so the first reason was personality. The second reason, sin. The third reason, or possible reason, is just distraction, right? In order to see God and experience God, we have to look at him. Scripture uses the word behold. In order to feel God, we have to behold or look at who he really is. So often we don't feel God because we're just too busy looking at everything else around us. Like obviously the phone is like the ultimate distraction example because it connects you to like all of the people, but then also the rest of the world and the internet and you know, all the things. Um, so that's the third possible reason. It's like pretty self-explanatory. The fourth reason that you might not feel God. And this is gonna be my last reason I talk about. There are other reasons out there. This is not an exhaustive list. These are just the four that I've chosen to focus on. But the last one I wanna talk about is that God has purposefully removed the feeling of his presence from your life for a season of growth. This is the kind of, it's really confusing. Like why would he do that? But it is talked about in scripture and it's been talked about by like church fathers and saints and people in the church for a really long time. Some people call this the dark night of the soul, right? Where there's just a period of darkness, a period of feeling far from God, um, and not, but you're seeking him, right? And, but you're not finding him. Feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Feels like no one cares about you. Like if there's anybody up there, he doesn't care about you. Um, Psalm 13 is a great place to look. I think I've had probably like two or three times in my life when I felt like this, when it's like, okay, I... I'm really looking. I'm not living in sin. Like, what is going on? And I really think it's a time when God kind of removed that feeling from me to see how much I trusted him, essentially. So Psalm 13, I don't think I... I think this is the verse I forgot. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. David is begging God to show him himself. And if you keep reading in the psalm, you realize he does. But David says he has to wait first, right? It's not just like, God, where are you? Oh, here you are, right? It's he has to wait. And I think that's something that we're not great at is waiting on God. All right, so those are the four reasons. We have personality, sin, distraction, and then God removing himself on purpose. So what do we do with that? What do you do? What if you've never felt God, like my student? Or maybe you have felt him before, but you're not really feeling him now. Well, the first thing is we need to examine our hearts. We need to tell God we're sorry for the ways that we've dulled his voice. In Revelation, Jesus tells a church that strayed from him. He says, behold, and I think I have this, yeah. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus wants to come in. He wants to come into your heart. He is knocking, waiting for you to open the door. There is a painting of this verse. I'm gonna, it's up there, okay? It's old. I don't know, Jesus looks kind of weird. But um, if you will notice the door that he is knocking on, do we see a doorknob? No. The doorknob is on the inside of the door, right? So the door to your heart, it opens from the inside. Jesus is not going to force himself in. You have to invite him. He's waiting. He wants to come in. It says he wants to eat with you. Like he wants to share a meal with you. He wants to talk with you. But you have to open the door. The second thing, I want to ask you, what are you beholding? 
What are you looking at? Are you so focused on what's going on around you that you're not looking at God? It's literally so easy to do. The other day I was in worship and I was actually like feeling it, you know? Um, and the line, he will never fail, was just like, I was like, yeah, he will never fail. I was like really feeling it. Then my 18-month-old daughter started yelling, Dada! at the top of her lungs because my husband was on stage playing <laughs> and singing. And I was like, okay, sh-. right? So Sophie's a great thing. She's wonderful. Sometimes distractions are good things, but they are distractions, right? And they keep us from looking at God. So we have to continually point our gaze towards God. How do we do that? Well, one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, we see this in Exodus 14. So if you've been coming on Sunday mornings, this is a major spoiler, okay? (laughs) Uh, But Exodus 14, Israel has been freed from Egypt in miraculous ways, okay? Yay! But now Pharaoh wants them back, okay? So they're way out in the desert, and they have a desert on one side, uncrossable mountains because they're cliffs on this side, and then uh, an uncrossable sea in front of them because they don't have boats, and there's also two million of them, so that's kind of quite the logistical nightmare to get two million people across to the sea. Okay, and then also behind them now are coming an army of their former owners, you know, that used to own them and make them do work for free because they were slaves. So... Not looking good for them at all. And in Exodus 14.10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. So pay attention to where their eyes are. They lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So they put their eyes on the Egyptians, and immediately it affects their feeling. It affects their emotions, right? Where they, what they were beholding affected how they were feeling, Right? Then if we go three verses further, Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be silent. God is telling them, hey, 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 you're you're not looking at the right thing. Obviously, uh, an army of former owners is scary if you don't know that God is there too, right? Right? He says, look at me. Pay attention to me. And it puts everything else into perspective. So we need to be looking at God. We also need to pay attention and wait for him, like I was saying from Psalm 13. So my student with the eating disorder when she was in middle school that felt like God didn't care because she hadn't felt him in her time of need. Okay, so meet with her all through you know, high school, and then I got this random invitation from her to come to her baptism. I was like, uh, okay. Uh, it had been a while since we'd seen each other. People had told me, like, hey, by the way, she's like a real Christian now. And I'm like, okay, uh, great. So I hadn't talked to her about it, though, right? So, of course, I go to the baptism, um, and she shared her story at the baptism. They had everybody who was getting baptized, like, say why they were getting baptized, and I was just like, the whole time. But she, she said she was waiting for the mountaintop experience. The like heavens parting, the angels singing, hallelujah chorus, you know, that kind of vibe. But, and honest, well, to be honest, that's what I was praying for for her. Like I prayed for her for like 10 years. Like God, show yourself to this girl. Like she just needs to see you. She just needs to feel you. But I'm so glad he did not listen to me because he did not show up in a big way. What she shared at her baptism is that he was actually very quiet. She was praying kind of like, hey, I don't know if you're there or not, but I'm going to pray. And she said that all of a sudden she just 
realized he was there and that he loved her. Right? She just felt that he, he had been there the whole time. He gave her eyes to see. Even she shared this at the baptism, and I was just like, I don't know, I could have cried. She said that even looking back at her time of darkness, she could see that he was there. Right? She didn't feel him, but he was guiding it. He, he led her parents to the treatment facility that she was in. He led friends to her when she did not have any friends or her friends were like terrible for her, right? He was working in her life and he gave her eyes to see that, right? So it wasn't this like, whoa, like heaven's open mountaintop moment. It was just this realization that God has been there all along, right? He was quietly working in her life. The last story I'm going to tell you is one from 1 Kings. So in it, there's the prophet Elijah and he is at his lowest point yet, um, Elijah's super cool as well. I could literally tell. Yeah, he's cool. You should read it. In Israel, okay, at the time, there was a very wicked king, King Ahab, and an even wickeder queen, Queen Jezebel. If you've ever heard somebody say Jezebel, that's it's after her. She's really bad. Um, Elijah, okay, had just seen this huge, mighty work of God. Um, if you've ever heard of Mount Carmel, he like pours water on an altar and then fire from heaven comes and eats it all up. And it's pretty cool. Um, and people even say the Lord is God. So you'd think this would be like a high moment for him, right? But it literally doesn't matter. Jezebel sends him a message and she's like, hey, by the way, I'm going to kill you in 24 hours or less. It's like terrible. So Elijah runs away. Okay. He is the only one fighting for God in Israel. Okay. Wicked king, wicked queen. He is the only one fighting for God, and he is all alone. He flees for his life, and he's super depressed, like very, 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 not just like, oh, he's super like depressed. Like, no, he was like, would have been clinically depressed, like diagnosed, you know, if you read this. Um, and I've actually heard sermons where the preacher's like, look at Elijah, he's so dramatic. And I'm like, um, I think he's suicidal, actually. Like, I don't think he's being dramatic at all. Uh, but if you read in 1 Kings 19, 4 through 5, I think I have that one. Yes, I do. Um, he, what does it say? He sat down under a broom tree and asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now. Oh, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. So, like, he, he wants to die. He's like, this is not worth it anymore. I don't want to live anymore. I don't know if any of you have ever felt like that, but the Bible is full of people who felt like that. So then he goes to sleep. And he wakes up. The angel gives him, an angel comes, gives him food. Okay, uh, and then he sleeps some more, and then the angel comes back and gives him more food, and then he goes on this trek to Mount Horeb, which is where God met with Moses in Exodus. See, it's full circle. Uh, okay, so then God comes to him, and he says, hey, there are the, it says the word of the Lord, so not like a form, but he hears, go outside, because the Lord is about to pass by. And then, this is what the scripture says. It says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went and stood at the mouth of the cave. And that God was in the gentle whisper. So at his lowest, God came to Elijah and he comforted him. And then it actually, God tells him like, hey, there are other people in Israel. You are not alone go do these things. Like that's what happens after when God comes is, is the wind in the whisper. But Elijah had to be paying attention, right? So when you don't feel God, when we don't feel God, let him into your heart. 
Really look at him and then pay attention to where he might be. Don't look for him in the fire or in the earthquake or in the wind. If I was Elijah, that's where I'd want him to be. I'd want him to be in the fire and the wind and the earthquake. I want him to be shattering rocks, right? But really where he often is, is in the whisper, in the gentle whisper of him leading you and loving you. So that's what I want to encourage you to do tonight. Let's pray.